Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, and 58, 1 through 14, found on page 596 of the Provided Bibles. This is what the Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to keep his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. 58, 1 through 14. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and strengthen your name, your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. 
If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. This is the word of God. Well, maybe you remember the story in the gospel accounts of where Jesus is teaching a crowd and his mother and brothers show up and word gets from them through the crowd to Jesus that they are standing on the outside. They want to speak with him and they sort of assume it seems that they who are on the outside in that situation ought to have a direct line to the inside with Jesus. And you, the reader of those, that story, sort of expects Jesus, once word gets through to him, to give them that direct line to the inside with Jesus. You expect him to say, hey guys, uh, mom's here, we'll finish this later, <laughs> you know, <laughs> see you later, the family's here. Uh, and he doesn't say that though. What he says instead, essentially, is, what are you talking about? My family's already here. Pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And what he's saying there essentially is that being a part of Jesus' family isn't about bloodline. It's about obedience. And he's not saying that the way you get into being a child of God is earning that status by your obedience, but by the way you distinguish who's part of the family of God and who isn't, and who is a child of God and who isn't, is by looking at the, li- those, the lives of those people and the lives characterized by obedience to the will of God are the lives of God's People are those who are part of God's family. Being a part of God's family isn't about having a general family tie or some kind of generic association to Jesus, but it's about following after him as Lord and Savior and living by his law. In John chapter 8, we hear another story where Jesus is talking with the Jewish leaders and they claim Abraham as their father in, their, in defense of their own status as the people of God. And Jesus tells them, challenging that, says, if you were Abraham's children, if you were really the people, true people of God, then you would do what Abraham did. You see, he's saying essentially the same thing in, in that in that incident as in the previous one. Because someone's status as God's people doesn't depend upon heredity or ethnicity, but it it depends upon character, inner character, a life that reflects the goodness and love and righteousness and compassion of God. That if God is our Father, then no matter what color our skin or language we speak or who our parents are or where we're from, if God is our Father and we are his children, then we reflect the family likeness by our lives. James said in James chapter two that faith which does not evidence itself in a transformed life and in deeds of love is a dead faith that can't save us. Because faith, true, real faith, always expresses itself. It expresses itself in a life of love 
and obedience. And an empty faith doesn't do that. An empty faith expresses itself in empty religious formalism that covers over self-serving actions. But genuine faith expresses itself in heartfelt obedience to God and in radical love towards neighbor. And that's, I think, what Isaiah is addressing here in chapters 56, 57, and 58. We didn't read all of that, but we're gonna, as we've done in the past, we're gonna try to cover the main uh, sort of flow of thought in all those chapters and then look a little more in depth to the parts that we've read. In Isaiah chapter 55, which we looked at last week, he's just talked about how the offer of salvation can't be bought. God's love and salvation can't be earned by our performance, by our good works, but it can only be received by sinners who have no works to offer that are good enough for God to reward with his love and salvation because, see, God's grace is too valuable to ever be bought. But the good news is God gives it away in abundance for free. We talked about that last week. And after reading chapters 54 and 55, one writer, as I was reading, studying these chapters, uh, one writer writes this, after you read chapter 55, you think, well, what else needs to be said, right? That's a pretty grand conclusion, this abundant offer of God's free, generous grace that he gives away for free to people who, that's such good news because they have no money to buy it for themselves. He gives it for free to any who will come to receive it. What great news, right? What more needs to be said? Well, there is something more, apparently, that Isaiah thought there needs to be said because he keeps going, right? He doesn't end after chapter 55. And Isaiah thought, and apparently God, Holy Spirit who's inspiring, thought that more needed to be said. And he starts right off in chapter 56, verse 1, saying some of that which he thought still needed to be said. Maintain justice and do what is right. And then verse 2, blessed is the one who does this. And you see, what he's essentially saying is that though God's grace is free, it always, God's grace always does something in our lives. It not only comforts us with the offer of forgiveness from sins, but it calls us to live a new life of obedience to God. It not only forgives us of our sin and guilt before a holy God, but it empowers us to live out the righteousness that God, that God's own character uh, is, is characterized by and which God calls us as his people to live out. It's, an, it's not just a forgiving grace, it's an empowering, strengthening grace that has the power to transform a life. And now we never attain to any kind of or anywhere near perfection in this life. But what the promise of the gospel is, is not just that it forgives our sins. I mean, it sounds wrong to say just when you're talking about forgiveness of sins. But it's true. It's not just that it forgives our sins, but that the gospel of God's grace also empowers us to live a life of service and obedience that is pleasing to God. We don't do that perfectly, but we do it genuinely as God's people who are empowered by his indwelling Holy Spirit. He's saying essentially the same thing that Martin Luther famously said, we're saved through faith alone, but the faith by which we're saved 
is never alone. It evidences itself. It evidences its genuine and real presence in a life through the good works that flow out of it as a response to the salvation that we've been freely given. And that's an important part of the Christian life. That's an important part of the gospel as we see as Isaiah unpacks this in these chapters. See, real faith shows itself by a life that's changed, by a life that reflects God's character, by a life that by grace learns to obey God, and by a life that by grace delights in obeying God, a life that in gratitude for being redeemed and being given God's great love so freely offers itself in response to a life of service towards God and a life of love towards others. And this can only happen by God's promise to make us people who are righteous and holy by that very same grace by which he forgives. You see, part of what Isaiah has been saying is that God chose a people for himself so that the whole world would come to know who he is and would come to see his character and his glory, that his people, as we've seen in the book of Isaiah, would be God's witnesses to the world, that by their lives witness to the goodness of God. But the whole world can only come to know God so long as God's people rightly represent him. And that's what this section is encouraging and calling God's people to do, to rightly represent God's righteous, holy, compassionate character by the way they live. Specifically, there's two things that this section of Isaiah shows. Chapters 56 and 57 shows, first, who the true people of God are, and who they aren't. And then chapter 58 shows us, second, what the lives of the true people of God look like and what they don't. So we see who the true people of God are and who they aren't, and what the lives of the true people of God look like and what they don't. Those are the two things we're gonna look at. So first, chapters 56 and 57 shows who the true people of God are and who they aren't. And he does this by contrasting two groups of people. In the one group, he puts foreigners and eunuchs, and in the other group, he puts Israelites. And he contrasts these groups by showing um, that these foreigners and eunuchs, if they are obedient ones, are more the true people of God than Israelites if they are disobedient ones. And that's a shocking comparison because that is not just not what they would, uh, Isaiah's audience would expect, but it would run against so much of what they were ingrained to think. This is the same part, th- point as Jesus' point uh, that we looked at earlier, that what shows that you're a part of God's family isn't bloodline, but obedience. It's not heredity or ethnicity or some kind of gener- general generic association, but it's character. It's not those who have some sort of formal association with God, but those who demonstrate a living relationship with him by reflecting his life in theirs. And he makes this point as I said, in a way that would be striking and shocking even to his original audience. He takes two people who would be considered in every way to be outsiders to God's family, foreigners and eunuchs, in every way would be considered outsiders to God's family, and he shows that they can be more insiders than 
the Israelites whom they would consider themselves to be, of course, insiders in God's family. And he shows that they, the Israelites, who would presume to be insiders can be more outsiders than those who they would presume to be outsiders. Did that, was that confusing? You know what I'm trying to say, right? God wants us to have assurance that we are his children, but we ne- he never wants us to have presumption that we are his children. And that's what he's getting at with his audience. See, the Israelites would so presume to be part of God's family that they would think, oh, it doesn't really matter if how I live. And they would so presume other people to be outside of God's family that it would, they would think it didn't matter how, how much they bound themselves to God. They're just on the outside and we're just on the inside and that's the way it is. That is presumption. And there's a world of the difference between assurance and presumption. I can be sure that I paid my bills or I could presume that I paid my bills. You see the difference there, right? I could be sure that I turned the stove off by going and checking if the stove is still on. <laughs> or I could presume that I turned the stove off by just assuming that it was off. And the difference is that presumption doesn't bother to examine the things that tell you whether the stove is on or off or that could give you that assurance. And the Bible tells us that there is a difference between assurance and presumption. The Bible, God, wants us to have assurance of faith. He wants us to know that we are, in fact, the children of God if we're in Christ. He never wants us to presume that to be the case. He wants us to have assurance about whether our faith is real and genuine. Now, some people are too self-doubting and need to be encouraged to grow in assurance and need to be encouraged to stop uh, doubting themselves and need to be encouraged to have the assurance that on their own maybe they're too reluctant to have. Some people are too self-doubting, but some people are too self-confident And, well, of course, I'm one of God's children. He'd be lucky to have me on his team, right? Some people are too self-doubting, but some people are too self-confident and are too quick to presume and are too prone to presumption. And here in Isaiah chapter 56 and 57, he's stripping away any uh, uh, proneness to presumption that his people might have. By taking these two people, groups, who would be considered in every way of outsiders and shows that they can be insiders. That those who would never presume that they were the children of God could have all the assurance that they are. And those people, as I said, uh, they're mentioned in verse 3, the foreigner and the eunuch. These are people that in every way would be thought of and would think of themselves as outsiders to God's family. But God's grace here not only brings them inside, but even more than that, it raises them up with dignity and honor. It raises them up, those who would be despised and rejected and cast out and cast away. God's grace brings them in and raises them up. These are people that the Old Testament would have left on the outside and people who would have been excluded from full inclusion to the people of God. And Deuteronomy 23, 1, 
prohibited eunuchs from ever entering into the assembly of the Lord. And Deuteronomy 23.3 prohibited Ammonites or Moabites from ever entering the assembly of the Lord. And not all foreigners were so permanently excluded in, in that verse, but other foreigners could enter through uh, the process of converting, but would still in many ways be thought of as second-class citizens in the family of God. But here in Isaiah 56.3, no distinction is made let no foreigner, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. He's telling them, don't tell yourself that God won't include or embrace you. No matter who you are or what deficiency there might be in you, he embraces you because he's gracious. And the particular thing about these foreigners and eunuchs is that they have received the grace of God and so committed their lives to God in response. He's not just saying that any foreigner is included or embraced. He's saying that those particular foreigners who have committed their lives to God and bound themselves to him, they can expect God's embrace. They can expect to be brought in as full insiders in the family of God, full members of the family of God, first-class citizens in the family of God. No matter what else about them in their lives would be tempted to cause them to count themselves out or would tempt others to want to exclude or despise or look down on them. And in 56, 4, and 5, he then addresses the eunuch to those eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what please me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You see, these are those who have kept God's law, who have chosen what pleases God, who have held and bound themselves to the covenant of God. What matters isn't their outward condition, but what matters is their heart before God. And that's the same, that's just as true for us. These people that God is describing, they're embraced as part of the family of God because they have bound themselves to him. Because their heart is right before God. They love what he loves. They hate what he hates. They want what he wants. They obey him and give their lives to him. And he promises them something here in these verses I just read that would be particularly relevant to them, to someone who would die childless and so whose name wouldn't be preserved and passed on in the normal way in history. He promises to that person a name that would last forever. He promises something better than just the ability to preserve a name in the ordinary earthly way of having children. He promises them that their name will live on for eternity because they would live on forever as God's children in God's house. One writer puts it this way, that if Christ has your heart, God says he'll give you a place in his home better than those born there who don't treat Christ as their everything. So come on in. To God, being an insider is no guarantee and being an outsider is no obstacle. If you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter eight, he's a symbol of this. That though he certainly would have died childless, by virtue of his faith in Jesus, we still 
know who he is today. And that's a small picture of what God is promising here because, see, those that the world forgets, God doesn't forget but shares his eternity with them. And in chapter 56, verse 6, he then addresses the foreigner. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And this is the same promise to these foreigners that their worship would be accepted by God because they would be included into the true people of God. Not, because of, not, not left out because of they, their heredity or ethnicity, but included because of their faith, their genuine faith that expresses itself in love and loyalty to God. They would be more the true people of God than those of the nation of Israel who didn't do God's will. And that's what he contrasts with these two groups of people. He takes two people, as I mentioned, who would be considered in every way as outsiders to God's family, and he shows that they can be insiders. And he takes those who would presume that they were insiders in God's family, and he shows that they can be outsiders. Because in the rest of chapter 56, and then in chapter 57, he then goes on to describe the nation of Israel. And he describes them as blind as rebellious and as unrighteous. And it's not just that these foreigners would be allowed to come into God's presence, but that God himself would bring them, we see in verse seven, chapter 56, and that God himself would gather them. And this was always God's intention. And the reason he had called his people to separate themselves from the other nations, the reason he had called his people people in the Old Testament to separate themselves from the world around them was so that they could keep from becoming like the world, so that they had something to call the world out of and call the world to. But here in chapter 57, you see the problem is that this Israel, this nation of Israel had become just like the world around them. And you see, if the church, if it fails to be distinct and different from the world around us, then we fail because we have nothing to call the world to. But the church can fail just as much if we are distinct from the world but fail to go out into the world and call the world to itself and to what it represents. If we remain totally separate from the world and effectively shut the world out rather than as God himself does, going to it to call the world to God's grace. And that's, this is the very attitude that Jesus had. In John chapter two, in fact, you may remember, and in the gospel accounts, Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 56. He quotes from verse seven, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You remember when Jesus quotes that in the gospel accounts. It's when Jesus goes to the temple and he encounters money changers doing their buying and selling and exchanging of money in the temple courts. In the temple courts or the court of Gentiles, 
the place in the temple where foreigners could worship. These money changers were crowding them out of the, the one space they could be. And Jesus got really mad when people crowded out the outsiders rather than making room for them. He got really mad, remember? He flipped tables, he made a, a whip, and drove people out. Wouldn't it be great if we as a church, if we were a church that was more concerned with making room for those who are on the outside rather than crowding them out or just focusing on the fact that I'm on the inside? That's a very difficult shift to make. It requires a lot of moving outside of myself. It requires a lot of seeing the needs around me. It requires a lot of faith and stepping out in faith. But it's a great thing to do because it reflects the grace of God that came to us when we were on the outside. See, a true child of God knows what it's like to have once been on the outside, but to have been brought in by God's grace. And so a true child of God ought to have compassion and move out in compassion to do the same thing, to see those who are on the outside and to think, how can I, instead of just remaining on the inside or stiff-arming people who are on the outside, how can I move out in compassion towards those who are on the outside and seek to bring them in? Someone might have absolutely nothing in common with you except that they and you both love God. And if that's the case, and you have more in common with that person and more unity with that person than the person you have everything else in common with except that. Because they, that person, is your brother or sister in Jesus. Because those who do God's will are a part of Jesus' family. And so in chapters 56 and 57, we see the first thing that we're looking at that we see who the true people of God are and who they aren't. In chapter 58, we see what the lives of the true people of God look like and what they don't. And we see in, these, in this chapter, chapter 58, that the lives of God's people are marked by the character of God. And we see what the lives of God's true people don't look like. The lives of God's people don't look like is a life marked by empty Religious formalism. Empty religious going through the motions. That is not what the lives of God's true people look like. In verse 1 through 5 of chapter 58, Isaiah describes empty false religion. And this false religion takes the form of empty superficial formalism. Religion that is just superficial, that is just outward only, with no heart engagement and no character transformation, religion that doesn't come from the heart of the worshiper in any way. He describes people who are just going through the motions of religious activity at best, and actually at worst, he describes people thinking that by their religious activities with no heart engagement, they can manipulate God even though their hearts are far from him. In verse two, of chapter 58, we see that they think they are seeking God. But in verse 3, Isaiah tells us that they do as they please. They seek not God's will and God's desires. They seek their own will and their own desires. They just do as they please. And we see in verse 2 that they look like they're a nation that does what is right. 
but they only look like a nation that does what is right. When viewed at from the distance, they're going through all the right motions, but when God comes and looks underneath the surface of that, he sees that it's empty, and he condemns it as just empty, false religion. There's not much that's more ugly, there are things maybe, but there's not much that's more ugly than going to church and acting like a pious person on the outside, but then in everyday life, hating all the things that God hates, and loving, hating all the things that God loves, and loving all the things that God hates. Then, you know, going to church, acting like a pious person, and then putting, casting God out of life all the rest of the days of the week. And people see things like this, I think, and say something like, see, Christianity is not about rules, but it's about a relationship with God. But I don't think that's what Isaiah is saying here because later on, we already saw that he, uh, in chapter 56, that he embraces the foreigner and the eunuch who keep his Sabbaths, who follow the laws of God. And later on in chapter 58, he, he does the same thing. Isaiah here isn't just throwing any um, activity of religion out the window. Um, but the problem here was that they took the, up the rules of the relationship without any actual engagement in a relationship with God. And the solution to that isn't to get rid of the rules but to see them as the right expression of a relationship with God. What kind of relationship do you have left if there's no rules that govern the interacting of that relationship? Nothing. Every, every relationship has rules that govern what that relationship means and how each person in that relationship relates to the other. But what Isaiah here is criticizing and condemning is that they've taken up the rules without any heart engagement to God. And the problem isn't that they're fasting. The problem isn't Sabbath keeping. The problem is empty formalism. Because at the end of the chapter, as I mentioned, he talks about true Sabbath keeping. And in uh, chapter 56, verse 2, he says, Blessed is the one who keeps the Sabbath, without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. See, isn't it interesting that he holds those, that odd pair together, not doing any evil on the one hand and keeping God's Sabbath on the other. He holds those things together. He joins together the specific laws of obedience to God with the general and you see, God's specific rules are the outworking, the specific outworkings of his general law of love. How do we love God and love one another? We do it by keeping God's commands, which tell us how to love God and love one another. What is the aim of keeping God's commands? It's loving God and neighbor. How do we live in relationship with God? We take up the obligations of love that govern that relationship. The problem isn't the commands of God. It's that similarly to the Pharisees in Jesus' day, these people had turned God's rules into a thin veil over evil hearts. 
They were people who were zealous for God's commands, but missed what those commands were really meant to bring about in their lives. They had removed serving God from hearts of love for God and thought that it didn't matter if love was absent from their hearts so long as they were going through the motions in the right way. And in doing so, they ceased to love God at all. And chapter 58, verses 6 and 7, show us what God considers to be true religion. He's just showed us in verses 1 through 5 what God considers to be false religion. And in 6 and 7, he shows us what is true religion. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Is this not the kind of fasting God has chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? I remember reading an autobiography of a slave girl whose evil slave owners went to church every Sunday. And she says in reflection upon that reality that that church must not have preached on Isaiah 58, 6 very often. You see, Christians' lives are useless. They're reduced to empty formalism if they don't exhibit and issue themselves forth in lives of love towards God and neighbor. And specifically, we're called here to act in compassion to those who are in need, to those who are hard-pressed, to those who are suffering. Christians, especially in the public sphere today, aren't really known for compassion these days. But the true people of God ought to be. We ought to be known for compassion. And this doesn't mean that we can or will right every wrong in our evil fallen world. And it doesn't mean we need to single-handedly change the landscape of society or the climate of our culture. But it does mean that we ought to be aware of and find ways in our lives to act in mercy towards those around us however small those ways might be. And we ought to be able to honestly reflect on our blind spots and ought to be able to more fully engage ourselves in responding to the needs around us in ways that God has given us opportunity and ability. Because as we talked about before, just like a true Christian ought to know what it meant to be an outsider brought in by grace, so we ought to know what it means to be needy but to be shown mercy and compassion because that's what the gospel is all about. That in our desperate need, God moved in mercy and compassion towards us at great cost to himself. Though he owed us nothing and though we don't really even show him the proper gratitude for it, he moved towards us in the greatest compassion and mercy to rescue and redeem us. And so we ought to reflect that in our lives in how we view and treat others. And listen to this promise to the child of God who does that. 58 verses 8 through 14. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. 
If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Those are some pretty uh, extravagant promises that God gives to the person who pours themselves out in service and love towards others. God promises here, I'll take care of you if you do that. You see, one of the reasons we don't want to do that is because we worry, we, we, we feel that we need to protect ourselves. It's hard to act in compassion. It's costly to do justice and mercy to others. And we often don't want to do that because of self-protection. We need to keep what's ours or we need to get ahead for ourselves. But God promises to take care of you when you pour yourself yourself out in service to other people. He says you'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And of course it's God who does the repairing. But he uses his people to do it. One person wrote this, we can't do it apart from God, but God won't do it apart from us. And of all the things we could pour ourselves out for in life, we're gonna pour ourselves out in life for something, right? Of all the things we could pour ourselves out for in life, isn't this a worthy one? To be one small part of God's taking the brokenness of this world and making it whole again? Wouldn't it be a great thing to be remembered for? To have written on your tombstone, repairer of brokenness. Ruin and destruction, you see, aren't the last word from God regarding this sinful, fallen world and sinful, fallen humanity. Sin destroys everything it touches, but God's grace makes it new again. God's grace makes us new again. God's grace can make you new again. And by God's grace, he can use you to bring about that renewal in others. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would take up these challenging words of Isaiah, that we would take stock of our own lives and see in what ways we can more fully reflect your character and your compassion. We pray that we would be people who are known for our compassion and would point people towards you by living lives of compassion and pouring ourselves out in love for others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.